Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. Episode 4.7, The Stamp Act Riots. As the spring of 1765 gave way to summer, tensions were on the rise throughout all of the colonies. Although Patrick Henry's Virginia resolutions had been significantly tamed prior to being enacted, that did not stop the colonial press from reporting that the more radical resolutions had passed. Of course, we know that they did not, but honestly, that is pretty irrelevant at this point. People were reading Henry's incendiary words and, as a response, were becoming increasingly incensed. Politically, not much was going to come from the summer of 65, at least officially. Most of the colonies had already wrapped up affairs in their assemblies and had gone home for the summer. However, the end of the legislative sessions would not be enough to slow down events. Rather than resolutions coming from the assemblies, what occurred throughout the summer of 1765 was a series of violent responses to the Stamp Act. As we are going to see, however, there is more to these uprisings than meets the eye. Rather than these being spontaneous outbreaks of violence, these riots often were cloaked in local politics. The first sign of trouble came in Massachusetts. Before we fully understand the coming uprising, however, we first need to take a moment to consider Massachusetts politics. We had discussed this some in our previous episode. However, it bears repeating that the assembly inside of Massachusetts had become extremely factionalized. At the forefront of this battle were the lieutenant governor, Thomas Hutchinson, and James Otis Jr. These two men absolutely hated each other's guts. Seriously, this was more than just mere political differences. This was an absolute loathing for each other. This hatred for each other formed some years earlier, in 1760, when Governor Francis Bernard found himself with an opening for the colony's chief justice position, a job previously held by Stephen Sewell, a nephew of Samuel Sewell. Former Governor William Shirley had promised James Otis Sr. that when there was an opening on the court, the spot was his. Unfortunately for Otis Sr., it seems that Bernard had missed that memo and instead gave the job to Hutchinson. Neither Otis Jr. nor Sr. were exactly singing the praises of Hutchinson. If you are curious why Bernard did not give the position to Otis, it appears that Bernard worried about Otis Sr.'s dedication to fighting smugglers, whereas with Hutchinson he had no reason to be concerned. This split between the Otis faction and the Hutchinson faction had caused a rift in the Massachusetts Colonial Assembly that would plague the colony for years to come. Now, Otis Jr. was a very busy man in the run-up to the Stamp Act, mostly by ruffling everybody's feathers, most importantly, those of his followers. Last time, we had discussed his pamphlet in response to the American Duties Act. Now, just months later, he decided to completely change course. Suddenly, and to the very considerable annoyance of his own party, Otis decided to accept parliamentary regulations. Otis writes that everybody knows Parliament has the right and the power 
to bind the colonies by all acts. Further, they may impose taxes on the colonies, both internal and external, as well as place taxes on land and trade. Otis does attempt to assure the reader here that there are no contradictions between this and his writing about colonial rights just a year before. But for Otis, it left even his biggest supporters scratching their heads. Otis's argument for this not being a blatant contradiction is that he always believed that the only remedy for the colonies was for Parliament to correct their previous mistake. In this way, Otis claimed that he was arguing the same thing that he had the year before, that Parliament, in their sovereignty, should correct their actions regarding the Stamp Act. This tract would send waves through the popular faction, led by Otis and his father, and it very nearly cost the younger Otis his seat, though ultimately he would manage to squeak out a win and remain in the Assembly. We are going to take a much deeper look in a few episodes' time of just how the Stamp Act would forever change colonial politics. However, I just wanted to touch on the Otis example this week to illustrate how factions within the colonies are a fluid thing that are indeed changing during this time. However, the thing that will really rock Massachusetts during the summer of 1765 is not a contradictory tract by James Otis Jr., Rather, the defining event is going to come from a group known as the Loyal Nine. The Loyal Nine, which is something of a precursor to the far better known Sons of Liberty, was a group of nine men who decided that they were tired of colonial inaction towards the Stamp Act. Their concern was not the vacillation of James Otis Jr. They wanted action, and they wanted it now. The underlying stress was mentioned on July 8th in the Boston Gazette, which complained that We have been told with an insolence, the more intolerable, because disguised with a veil of public care, that is not prudent for us to assert our rights in plain and manly terms. Nay, we have been told that the word rights must not be once named among us. Cursed prudence of interest designing politicians. The first obvious takeaway is that there is a subset of colonists that had become fed up with political dealings. They did not want some fancy-worded pamphlet. They wanted clear, unambiguous action. The second thing to consider here is that the Boston Gazette was published by Benjamin Eads, who was himself one of the Loyal Nine. This piece also hits on the fact that none of the Loyal Nine were in the assembly. They were most definitely not politicians, but they were made up mostly of merchants and laborers. If you are wondering about Samuel Adams, because he famously is going to be a very prominent leader of the Sons of Liberty, that is still a bit off in the future. Though it appears that, while not officially one of the nine, Adams is suspected to have secretly met with the group. If the piece in the Boston Gazette highlighted the frustrations of the Nine towards the inaction of the colonial politicians in response to the Stamp Act, the question shifts to exactly what the Nine had in mind. Tired of the malaise, by July the Nine were in the process of planning action. Their crosshairs were placed squarely upon Andrew Oliver. Oliver made a good, dastardly villain for the Loyal Nine. 
Not only was Oliver the new stamp collector in the colony, but as a bonus, he was Thomas Hutchinson's brother-in-law. Now, the Loyal Nine were not exactly the leading members of Boston society. They also were not exactly the rough type. Plus, as the name implies, their numbers were limited. Nine guys does not make a riot. No, the Loyal Nine were going to need to recruit some muscle. Thankfully for our Nine, Boston is a city that provided a solution to this problem. By 1765, Boston had a well-established history for organized street violence, with the violence being run through the North and South End gangs. Every year on Guy Fawkes Day, these rival gangs gathered, got drunk, and then proceeded to attempt to beat the other group senseless. To be clear, these were not just mere performative fights either. These were legitimate brawls. Just the year before, the militia had to be deployed to quell the violence, and in the process, a five-year-old child was killed. Following this, the groups agreed to a general truce and merged into a single group under the leadership of former South Ender Ebenezer McIntosh. McIntosh, when presented with the opportunity to go out and be a rabble-rouser and cause some general mayhem, quickly accepted the job. The first sign of anything came on the morning of August 14th, when an effigy of Andrew Oliver was found hanging in a tree, alongside a second effigy in the shape of a boot. The boot was a reference to the king's tutor, advisor, and friend, the Earl of Butte. Thomas Hutchinson, upon getting word of said effigies, ordered them to be taken down. The local sheriff moved out to do just that. However, upon reaching the effigies, he was told in no uncertain terms that he would be taking down no effigies today. The sheriff reported back to Hutchinson that should he press the issue, they were going to kill him. It is right around this point that it became clear that this was going to be a problem. During the daytime hours of the 14th, there was not really much more than some milling around and yelling. Yeah, the sheriff had been told what would happen if he touched the effigies. But mostly, what ensued was a tension-filled standoff. It was not until after the sunset that the situation would begin to change. Shortly after sunset, McIntosh cut down the effigy of Oliver and began marching through the town. As the mob marched, they chanted, Liberty. Property. No stamps. The first stop of the restless crowd was a building owned by Oliver that they believed was going to be used in Oliver's official Stamp Act capacity. Although this was not actually the case, by this point the crowd was really not concerned with such details and promptly tore the building down. However, some office space was not what this crowd had in mind and shortly after destroying this building, they made their way, effigy in hand, towards Andrew Oliver's house. In a move that must have been exceptionally disconcerting to Oliver, upon arrival, the group beheaded the effigy of him. The body of the effigy was then stomped on by the crowd before it was lit on fire. All the meanwhile, the crowd set to work on Oliver's house. 
Now, much to the crowd's disappointment, Oliver was not in his house, but was hiding nearby. Following a short search for the absent Oliver, the group returned to his house and decided that its destruction would have to be enough. There was one attempt that night to break up the riot and quell the ongoing destruction of Andrew Oliver's house when Thomas Hutchinson and the Boston Sheriff showed up and tried talking some sense into the crowd. Upon the group preparing to take up arms and shoot them, the two men decided that it was probably a pretty good time to leave. The following day, with his house in shambles, a smaller but undoubtedly intimidating gang once again approached Oliver and encouraged him to decline the commission. Oliver, having no interest in sharing the same fate as his effigy, informed the crowd that he would indeed not be collecting the stamp. He assured them that the minute his commission arrived, he would promptly resign it. This was not the hill that he wanted to die on, and a refusal to give up the commission very well could have brought about that end. That night there was some additional unrest, but other than a bonfire on Fort Hill and some pounding on the doors and windows at Hutchinson's house, the night proved to ultimately not be a repeat of the previous evening's events. Despite somewhat cooler heads prevailing on the 15th, Boston was not yet finished with violence. On the night of August 26, again a crowd formed around a bonfire while shouting, Liberty and Property. From there, they began marching. The first target they had settled on was a local customs officer. Upon arrival, the group was disappointed to find that their target was nowhere to be found. In what was surely going to be a repeat of the destruction of Oliver's house, they were only stopped by a landlord who came out and informed them that their customs official was just renting the place. More importantly, in an effort to save his property, he offered to buy the group drinks. Shortly thereafter, you had an already angry mob that was now intoxicated as well. Now filled with liquid courage, the crowd broke into two groups. One went to the house of William Story, the register of the Admiralty's house, with the other moving on Benjamin Hollowell's house. In both cases, the houses were thoroughly looted. However, neither of these guys was the actual target for the night. The real target was Thomas Hutchinson. Hutchinson and his family escaped in time. However, the mob did not simply ransack his house. They all but completely destroyed it. All that was left by the time the sun came up was a gutted shell. As the sun rose on August 27th, the city had to come to grips with what had happened. There was mostly just shock. Protests and burning Andrew Oliver in effigy, that was fine. However, the level of violence seen on the 26th, well, that went a bit too far for everybody's taste. Even amongst those who harbored some more radical leanings, guys like James Otis Jr. and Samuel Adams, did what they could to denounce the violence, and, more importantly, distanced themselves from the events. Adams clarified that while he fully supported the more peaceful protests of the 14th, he did not support the destruction of property. That was where he drew the line.
Thomas Hutchinson writing on August 30th, so four days after the riots of the 26th, stated that, The encouragers of the first mob never intended matters should go to this length, and the people in general express the utmost detestation of the unparalleled outrage, and I wish they could be convinced what infinite hazard there is of the most terrible consequences from such demons when they are let loose in a government where there is not constant authority on hand sufficient to suppress them. Hutchinson clearly understood that events had spiraled out of control. However, he blamed those who instigated the entire ordeal, as he saw them as essentially playing with fire. As a brief epilogue on the events in Boston, McIntosh, as well as several others, were arrested for the destruction of Hutchinson's house. McIntosh would, twice actually, get released without trial. For the others being held, their day would come soon. A group of men decided that it would be prudent, in the middle of the night of course, to head to the home of the jailer, and, in what I'm sure were very polite terms, try to convince him to hand over the keys to the jail. The jailer, who was capable of reading the room, promptly did just that and handed over the keys. Soon enough, all those being held were free. If the Virginia Resolutions had provided the spark for the written denunciations of the Stamp Act, then the Boston riots that August provided the encouragement of the other colonists to take to the streets. The violence would first spread to the South, specifically to Rhode Island and Connecticut. In Rhode Island, political power rested primarily in the hands of the Assembly, though as a whole the colony was especially democratic. Unlike in the other colonies, the governor was elected rather than appointed. With such a high degree of democracy existing in the colony, there came a large amount of factionalism. There were two primary factions within the colony, the Newport faction led by Samuel Ward and the Providence faction led by colonial governor Stephen Hopkins. Politically, both factions actually were pretty similar in their views, with the major differences between the groups being what city they were trying to push towards the top of colonial prominence. As it followed, when Hopkins and the Providence group was in power, it was to the detriment of Ward and the Newport group, and vice versa when those roles reversed. There was also a small, and I really do mean small, third group that absolutely despised Rhode Island politics and wanted to see the installation of a royal governor. This group, led by Dr. Thomas Moffat and Martin Howard Jr., was not simply a fringe problem either as they were advocating for the revocation of the colonial charter. They were actively attempting to effect that very end to the now increasing concern of the existing colonial leadership. What followed during the early parts of 1765 was a flurry of pamphlets about colonial rights. This, therefore, is the state of politics in Rhode Island when news of the Stamp Act came down. It had been insinuated by this point that the small group based out of Newport had been big supporters of the American Duties Act, and now they were just as fond of the Stamp Act. 
In late June, the colony learned about the Virginia Resolutions. Shortly after the events of August 14th, they were also aware of the uprising in Boston. With everything that had been happening within the colony, there was an undeniable amount of tension flowing through it. Indeed, the question of colonial rights was very much on everybody's mind, as the colonial charter had been challenged. Certainly, with the question of colonial rights being at the forefront, the colonists could not allow the Stamp Act to stand without consequence. The demonstrations hit Newport on August 27th, which means that Rhode Islanders were unaware of the events the previous night in Boston. However, much as was done in Boston, the mode of protest came in the form of effigies. There were three effigies that were hung from a makeshift gallows that was constructed, and this gives us a good glimpse into the feelings of the colonists. The three effigies included Augustus Johnson, the colony's stamp collector, which, yeah, okay, that makes sense. The other two, however, were of Moffat and Howard. This clearly shows that the reaction of the colonists on the 27th was looking not only at the Stamp Act, but also at the general attacks on their charter by Moffat and Howard. Howard and Moffat had learned a little bit before about the plans to hang them in effigy, and complained to now Governor Samuel Ward, who pretty much told them that they were just overreacting. However, they were not overreacting, and sure enough, there they were, hanging. The 27th, however, would not bring any real violence. People gathered and made everybody nervous, but following a bonfire that night where the effigies were burned, everybody just went home. So, all is good, right? No mass outbreaks of violence occurred. Everybody just went home. That is, until the next morning when a far more agitated crowd decided that it needed to up the ante. During the day on the 28th, an angry mob moved towards the homes of Moffat and Howard and proceeded to ransack and loot them. They then moved to the house of Johnson and did the same thing. However, after they had seemingly wrapped up for the day, they decided that there had been some more work to do, specifically to the homes of Moffat and Howard. The mobs returned and proceeded to completely destroy both homes. The fact that they did not bother to go back and level Johnson's house is a telling sign of just where their heads really were. The riots continued into the next day when it became clear just how volatile the entire situation really was. To this point, the organizers of the riots had been mainly the merchants in the colony. As in Boston, the merchants were happy to enlist the help of the laborer class to do the heavy lifting of their fighting. On the 29th, the merchants were ready for things to come to an end. Houses had been destroyed. Things had certainly gone far enough. Unfortunately for them, those that were actually doing the heavy lifting of the rioting had decided that they were not done. In fact, this group was quickly turning their attention towards the very merchants who had originally recruited them. Quickly, the merchants and the colonial officials captured the ringleader, a 21-year-old named John Weber. They rushed him out and stuck him on a ship in the middle of the harbor, hoping that by capturing Weber, 
the mob would just fizzle out. Rather, Weber's gang decided that they needed to move on the merchants' homes and raise them to the ground. The merchants, definitely not wanting to go this direction, raced back out to the harbor, brought Weber back, and assured everybody that they had just captured the wrong man. It had all been a very unfortunate mistake. After some more rioting, Weber was again arrested. This time, though, the mob did dissipate. At the end of the day, Weber would end up being the fall guy for everything and was the only person ever to face justice in Rhode Island for the riots. The events in Rhode Island and Massachusetts really illustrate the danger of the ongoing riots. The merchant class was behind the riots in both Massachusetts and in Rhode Island. Both colonies relied on the lower classes to do the actual heavy lifting of the rioting. The merchants lost control of the situation in both cases. Inside Massachusetts, this manifested as the destruction of Hutchinson's house. In Newport, it was the merchants who found themselves as the targets of the angry mob. The merchants were the leaders of the resistance to the Stamp Act, although they were quickly proving themselves unable to control the flow of events. The events in Boston quickly became the model for just what the Stamp Act riots would look like. Critically, this is not something that becomes isolated either to any one region. We already have evidence of this, as the first response to the Stamp Act came from Virginia. And just like the Virginia Resolves, violence would spread throughout the colonies. The vast majority of these mob actions were likewise organized, the same as we see in New England. It was the merchants and the lawyers who were planning the actual responses, and then recruiting from the lower classes, typically the laborers, to provide the necessary manpower and muscle. In Connecticut, the stamp collector was Jared Ingersoll, the guy who we met last week who informed Grenville that the Stamp Act was not going to be well-received. Despite being opposed to the Stamp Act, Ingersoll had accepted the commission. Connecticut was the second colony that saw violence, and though the specific date is unclear, it was sometime after the August 14th uprising in Boston. The first person who the mob went for was not Ingersoll, but his assistant, Nathaniel Wales. Wales was informed that it was probably not in his best interest to accept the job, and Wales, not wanting to disappoint, promptly told Ingersoll thank you, but no thank you. In the coming weeks, Ingersoll found his effigy being burnt in protest, and mobs arriving at his house. Ingersoll agreed that once the colony took some action, he would resign his commission and would turn over any stamps to the people that came to him. Connecticut would also have some fun, staging mock trials against Ingersoll, and, in general, arguing against the act, though this was far more of an example of performative theater than it was any kind of meaningful inquiry. In New York, the riots came in October. Led by those same merchants that we see elsewhere, now dubbing themselves as the Sons of Liberty, they gathered some 2,000 people together to attempt to block the stamps from coming into the colony. Now, this did not actually work. 
The British had figured out that this was going to happen, and the stamps were brought in earlier than expected. Following that, it took more the traditional route. The house of Lieutenant Governor Cadwallader Colden was looted and his carriage was burnt. Eventually, Colden gave in to demands and turned over the stamps, which themselves were promptly lit on fire. The actual stamp collector wisely decided that he did not want the job and resigned his commission. The stamp collector in Maryland was Zachariah Hood. Hood, like so many others, was treated to his effigy being burned. His house was destroyed and he was forced to flee the colony. In a stroke of really bad luck, Hood fled directly into the turmoil breaking out in New York. The Sons of Liberty there were excited about his presence in the colony and went to give him a proper greeting. They were subsequently able to convince Hood to resign his commission. George Saxby was the collector in South Carolina. Saxby fled to the relative safety of a local fort. Well, there his effigy was burnt and his house was destroyed. Like all the others, Saxby was not interested in following the lead of his now burning effigy and agreed to resign his commission. The same thing played out in Virginia, where George Mercer found himself being burned in effigy. He quickly resigned, hopped on a ship, and booked it out of the colonies altogether. Pennsylvania presents us with some clues about the overall response and, more specifically, what was expected back in London. In Pennsylvania, John Hughes was the tax collector. In terms of the actual events that played out, really nothing here was radically different from anywhere else. Hughes held out for a bit, was all but placed under siege in his home, before he too resigned. What makes Pennsylvania unique is that Hughes was put in his post by the American agent in London, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin was in London, fighting an ultimately pointless war against John Penn and the proprietary government of Pennsylvania. More importantly, really, than any of the fight with the Penn family was the things that came out of it. First, to make sure that Franklin did not become too big of a problem, his son William was given the governorship of New Jersey. Second, it meant that Franklin had a front row seat to the events surrounding the Stamp Act in London itself. Franklin and Hughes were not enemies, and he certainly would not have selected Hughes if he knew what was coming. Hughes wrote to Franklin during September 1765 describing his plight. Letters that Franklin would provide to the ministry. Hughes wrote that, But I fancy I shall not escape the storm of Presbyterian rage. And as Captain Friend is expected every day, my doom will soon be known. But whether I live to inform you is yet in the womb of futurity. Hughes, in other writings, makes it plainly clear that he was concerned that the mob was going to kill him. Franklin had been behind the curve here, and he had not anticipated the degree of resistance to the Stamp Act. Surely, he expected that there would be complaints and grumbling. However, nothing suggests that Franklin was able to see what was coming. For some, they directed those angry murmurings towards Franklin himself who, as an agent in London, drew obvious suspicion. 
Well, Franklin will ultimately end up advocating for the repeal of the Stamp Act. This is one instance where Franklin is forced to act as a reactionary as he struggled to fully understand the events going on back at home. By the time that the fall of 1765 rolled around, news of the reaction to the Stamp Act was filtering back to London. The British press was reporting on the Stamp Act response by that October. British newspapers were carrying tracts discussing the claims of the American colonists. William Knox wrote in On the Claim of the Colonies, a denunciation of the colonial complaints based on the fact that the agents in London failed to put forward any meaningful arguments against the Stamp Act and rather focused on nothing more than the constitutional question, a question that Grenville had made abundantly clear he was not going to entertain. In another piece, published first in London in August and then republished in Rhode Island in late October, an author who goes by the name William Pym wrote a scathing tract regarding the fact that the colonists cling to their precious charters, despite the fact that Parliament can revoke those charters whenever they want. It is worth noting that this was published in London roughly contemporaneously with the first riots in Boston so clearly the author did not know of these just yet. When it was republished at the end of October, the colonists were well aware of the turmoil of the last several months. The audiences therefore receiving these messages would have a very different interpretation depending on where they read the editorial. The tracks by Pym and Knox appeared prior to Parliament realizing just how dire the situation had become. By October, however, news was arriving about the situation in the colonies. Unsurprisingly, the news of mob violence in the colonies was not welcome. Shortly after passing the Stamp Act, the Grenville Ministry had collapsed. Grenville was out and Lord Rockingham was in. Unfortunately for Rockingham, his new ministry was on anything but solid ground, and the last thing that he needed was a crisis in America. As the members of Parliament learned about the violence that had gripped their colonies, members viewed the actions of these mobs as being nothing short of an open rebellion, as calls of treason quickly began to spread. Going into December of 1765, therefore, the popular response amongst Parliament was to double down, rather than repeal the act and risk setting a dangerous precedent. Parliament wanted to be clear that they had no intention of giving into what they considered to be little more than an annoying temper tantrum. George III, who seemed more sad at the response than anything else, hardly mentioned the events in America when he addressed Parliament during the opening session. Regardless of the feelings of Parliament that the Americans were engaging in a tantrum, British merchants had grown far more concerned with the situation. There was already a depression going on, and new acts towards the colonies, rather than improving trade and revenue, had done little more than to further depress it. The colonists had been importing less since the passage of the American Duties Act the year before, in the hope that it would lead to the repeal of the act. This was compounded by the fact that when said merchants went to collect their debts, the economic depression meant that the colonists had nothing to pay. 
These same merchants were becoming increasingly frustrated and were anxious for Parliament to ease their situation. As the fall gave way to winter, Lord Rockingham was forced to confront a crisis in the colonies. However, as it would turn out, possibly the biggest and most concerning threat to British influence in her North American colonies came in October 1765, right around the time that the first stories of that summer's violence crept into London. This threat was inspired not by any single set of colonial resolves, or even from mob action. Rather, it was from something a decade before, spearheaded by Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Hutchinson, that would come to define colonial resistance. The colonies recognized that they needed not an assortment of politically contradictory responses. They needed an organized response from the colonies as a whole. Reaching back to the Albany Congress of 1754, the colonies decided that it was time to converge a Congress to address the Stamp Act. Next time, we are going to explore that Congress. The Stamp Act Congress marks a major development in colonial history, and one that would greatly concern the leadership back across the Atlantic. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we discuss the Stamp Act Congress. <laughs> <laughs>